The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Program Autism One, a conversation of hope. For Tuesday, May 25th, we're broadcasting live from the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in Chicago. And we are here with our very special guests, Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Polly Tommy. Dr. Andrew Wakefield is an academic gastroenterologist, and you can read more about his bio at www.callus-disregard.com. Polly Tommy is the editor-in-chief of the Autism File magazine, and our topic today is Callous Disregard, the GMC Determination, and the Future. We are broadcasting one day after the GMC Determination on Serious Professional Misconduct and Sanction, and before we begin with our guests, I would like to read a couple of comments. One comment is from Allison uh, Edwards, posted by Jim Thompson on the Age of Autism website, and the other comment is um, something that was sent in from Philippa Hart to the WeSupportAndyWakefield.com website. First comment, Allison Edwards, chairwoman of the campaign group Cry Shame, which supported Wakefield, said, this is to issue a warning to doctors not to dissent. No children were harmed in the clinical tests. They were trying to look at the problems and treat them, and the children improved. How do you get charged with doing your job? And from Philippa Hart, thank you, Dr. Wakefield, for putting your career on the line for our vulnerable children. This is a David and Goliath battle, and your courage is amazing and inspiring. My son, Haley Marr, was born August 25, 1991, in Sydney, Australia. In his first three days of life, he was given 48 hours of IV antibiotics followed by the Hep B vaccine. In his first year, he received the full vaccine schedule. This was the start of his descent into serious neuroimmune sensory gastrointestinal disorder. He was formally diagnosed with autism and a moderate intellectual delay at four years old. We finally found out about treating him biomedically when he was 11 years old after trying many, many other therapies and treatments. At this time, he had loose and undigested bowel movements for his whole life, and he was also vomiting every morning before school. He used to repeatedly ask me to cut his head off. That was a quote from her letter. I think this was because of neuroinflammation in his brain causing major pain. Haley's survival reflexes are non-existent. This means that he requires a very high level of care, especially with self-help skills and via a specialized diet. After beginning biomedical treatment, his behavior calmed down, and at 18 years old, he has a beautiful disposition. 
Our family supports Dr. Wakefield. Sincerely, Philippa Hart. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Wakefield to our program. We're all uh, keying here off of one microphone, uh, Dr. Wakefield, Polly, Tommy, and I, so we're going to be passing it back and forth. So my first um, question to Dr. Wakefield would be the panel, I'm, and I am reading this from the GMC's determination, and it says, the panel has acted as an independent and impartial tribunal and exercised its own judgment on these matters. Dr. Wakefield, what is your opinion of that statement? Well, Terry, firstly, let me say it's a great pleasure to be back here at Autism One. It's one of my favorite meetings, one of the most progressive and wide-ranging meetings, so it is a pleasure to be here again. And um, uh, that statement by the GMC, it, it's not consistent with the fact that there was clearly um, huge pressure from the government to achieve a finding of guilty, a guilty verdict against me and against my colleagues. Um, and this was um, exemplified by the fact that the first chairman, Dr. Kumar, was replaced, and he was replaced by a second chairman, uh, Professor Angus McDevitt, who had actually been uh, instrumental in the introduction of a dangerous MMR vaccine in the UK as part of the uh, committee that looked at adverse reactions to vaccines. Now, that's not to say that Dr. McD uh, Professor McDevitt was responsible, but he certainly had an undisclosed conflict of interest in influencing or an attempt to, to influence that committee uh, and advise it on vaccine issues. So this was very much uh, 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 really a, an interrogation uh, of doctors who had confronted um, issues of vaccine safety. Uh, there is absolutely no ambiguity about that, no um, argument that this was really uh, an effort to crush dissent and prevent us and other doctors questioning vaccine safety. Thank you, Dr. Wakefield. And you know, when I read the GMC's determination, I really feel as if they are building a straw man that then they can knock down. They have they have tried to uh, artificially construct an argument. Um, so that they can achieve the, the result that they would like to get. Is that your perception also, and can we go through some of the points in the determination one by one? Of course, Terry, and you're absolutely right. This is actually just a smokescreen. The whole thing is a smokescreen which is designed to distract the attention of the medical profession, the media, and the public away from the real issue, and the real issue is that there are millions and millions of very, very sick children out there you've heard uh, your listeners have heard some of the stories just read out by you this morning, tragic stories and exactly the same stories uh, that we heard way back in 1995-96 that caused us to act both professionally and morally in the children's interest. And this smokescreen, in other words, playing the man and not the ball, really does not address the real issue, and that is what is causing the worldwide pandemic of developmental disorders. All right, so going through um, the GMC's allegations, first we're going to go through uh, their allegations and then their determination of how to handle the case that they have constructed. First, they say that you were not to have, uh, it, it says the panel has already found, has already proved that Dr. Wakefield's honorary consultant appointment was subject to a stipulation that he would not have any involvement in the clinical management of patients. So what would you say to that? My um, role in the children was to conduct research. I was a research physician working 
at the Royal Free, and I did have absolutely no role in the clinical management of these children. The clinical decisions, the tests that were done, the interpretation of those tests was um, undertaken by some of the world's leading physicians in their field, pediatric gastroenterologists such as Professor Walker-Smith and Professor Simon Murch. And the panel came to an incorrect determination that I had somewhere, uh, somehow played a role in the clinical management of these children. I had not. And then they say that you accepted monies totaling 50,000 pounds and that you ought to have realized that Mr. Uh, Barr, a solicitor, would submit this to the legal uh, aid bar, legal, legal aid board, excuse me. Yes. Um, in common with many other doctors, I agreed to act as a medical expert on behalf of the children in the MMR class action litigation, which was emerging in the UK. And I did this uh, both for moral and professional reasons. These children had benied, been denied access to the process of justice, and I believe that they if they did not get the help that they deserved, then they were simply going to uh, be discarded and perish on the streets when their parents uh, became old and infirm or died themselves. And I had an absolute moral obligation to do what I could to determine whether these children had a case in law. There was absolutely no secret about this. It was known to my colleagues at the Royal Free, and it was known in the public domain because it was reported a year before, the, two years before the Lancet paper was published in the national media. And this was, again, no secret. I acted as an expert. The Legal Aid Board awarded a grant, not to me, but to the medical school for the conduct of a research product project to look for the evidence of measles virus in the intestine of these children. It was handled in exactly in accordance with the way in which other research grants are handled, and there was nothing at all um, that was um, anything but above board. Actually, one of my favorite chapters in this book, Callous Disregard, which you can learn more about at www.callous-disregard.com, is actually called Disclosure. But with regard to the research project, they're saying that there's some confusion uh, between project a project called 17296. There's some confusion between that and another project in that you um, weren't forthright about which project, which procedures were being uh, undertaken for. Again, I think, uh, Terry, this reflects the fact that the, um, the panel are almost entirely ignorant of research matters. They were, the panel was made up of um, general practitioners, of psychiatrists, and of lay people. The children were investigated for their clinical indications. The children had undergone neurological deterioration, and they exhibited gastrointestinal symptoms. Neither of these, in the opinion of Professor Walker-Smith and his colleagues, had been investigated adequately. And therefore, in a multidisciplinary uh, team approach, there was a determination of which investigations these children needed and uh, what to do about the findings from those investigations. My role in this was research, and this was initially to look at the biopsies in a um, highly detailed way in the Lancet children. And that was covered by an appropriate ethical approval, which was in place at the time and in every child's records that were adduced in evidence at the General Medical Council, there was a consent form signed by the doctor and the parent, which gave permission to do the appropriate research. 
So where the, con the confusion comes from, it seems to exist in the minds of the panel because they've not understood, and certainly not in, not in, the, in the minds of the doctors who gave consistent evidence to that effect throughout. Plus, I think it begs the question that the panel had a vested interest in being confused. Well, it's actually more interesting than that. In fact, it's more mundane. What happened is that the, the prosecuting lawyers, in conducting their due diligence in advance of the case, simply failed to ask the chairman of the Ethics Committee at the Royal Free the right question. He failed to ask the question, were there any other existing ethical approvals that were relevant to the investigation of the children in The Lancet? And not being asked that question, he assumed that they were referring to Project 17296. They were not. So had they asked that question, they would have been presented with the relevant documents. The GMC could never then have made the charge against us, and we could never have been determined guilty. And Dr. Wakefield goes into this in great detail in callous disregard, and we will pick up with this when we're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Polly Tommy on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Polly Tommy, and we are discussing the book Callous Disregard and the GMC determination, the General Medical Council determination, and the future. And Dr. Wakefield, I'd like to ask you, why did this hearing take place in the first place? Well, it's a very important question. Why this smokescreen? Why this attack against doctors who appear to be doing their duty in investigating very sick children? Well, when I got involved in the litigation in the UK, it was the impression of both the lawyers, uh, the parents, and myself that the litigation was against the, the vaccine manufacturers, which is... Uh, the law in England, the product liability law under which it was going to be fought. It turned out that it wasn't. It turned out, in fact, very early on, when it was known that I was an expert in the litigation, representatives of the British government made contact with the dean of the medical school, my effectively my boss, and tried to stop the work. They tried to stop valid vaccine safety research. And they did so because, in fact, it was not the vaccine manufacturer in the UK, SmithKline, who were liable. It was the government. Why? Because in 1997-98, when they introduced the MMR vaccine in the UK, they introduced a dangerous brand of the vaccine. It contained a mump strain which caused meningitis. The vaccine was licensed in the UK in the same month that it was withdrawn for safety reasons in Canada. And a representative of the Canadian Public Health Service came to the UK to advise on the introduction of the vaccine and told them not to introduce this vaccine because it was dangerous and causing meningitis. They ignored his advice. And they gave the major part of the contract, 85% of the market in the UK, to the home team, to SmithKline Beecham. They introduced a vaccine which was knowingly dangerous. They did not institute adequate surveillance, and lo and behold, four years later, that vaccine had to be withdrawn at short notice because it was causing meningitis at a much higher rate than had previously been thought. And that was the attitude of the British authorities to safety and to children's health. They preferred, for whatever reason, to give a contract to a uh, British company Um, with the introduction of a dangerous vaccine at the expense of children in the UK. And so the case was to be against the government. The government stood to be sued for a lot of money, and therefore the case against me had to be um, brought forth in order to silence me. And that is my belief. And this came to my attention from a whistleblower from the government um, who was the Canadian doctor who was um, introduced to the UK to to, uh, advise on the vaccine uh, policy and who told them not to do it. And he felt sufficiently motivated by guilt and concern because he knew many children had been damaged by this vaccine to meet me and to meet with lawyers on Newcastle Station uh, one cold uh, winter uh, uh, Sunday and disclose this story to me. And he had been distressed by the cavalier attitude of the British authorities to issues of safety in the introduction of this vaccine in the UK. And I think that is a large part of the reason why the British government have got to throw up this 
smokescreen to discredit me uh, in order to prevent this information coming forward. Well, it's now described in callous disregard, and people can read it for themselves and come to their own judgment. Thank you, Dr. Wakefield. Yes, I think you alluded to some information that you gave in the chapters, the whistleblower, and also the dean's dilemma, that the dean of the medical school had a dilemma. But you also talk about uh, Horton of the Lancet, and in the GMC's determination, they say, with regard to the non-disclosure to the Lancet, the panel accepted evidence from the editor of the Lancet. So why don't you tell us about the evidence of the editor of the Lancet and when he knew things? Yes, another interesting story. Um, I was uh, accused and found guilty of um, a conflict of interest which was not disclosed, and that was um, having uh, been made an award by the Legal Aid Board for research that was not reported in the Lancet. Now, um, the original allegation made by a lawyer to the editor of the Lancet was that the study published in the Lancet of 12 children was funded by the Legal Aid Board. It was not. That is absolutely not the case, and that is categorically um, uh, um, characterized by the evidence that was produced. The Legal Aid Board funding was for a quite separate study, which was to look for evidence of measles virus in the intestine. In fact, that uh, study was never published for one reason or another, um, but nonetheless may well be published in the, in the near future. Now, the important thing about this is that the initial information given to the editor of the Lancet was, in fact, false. None of the children in the Lancet paper, at the time of their referral, to Professor Walker-Smith, that is the time material to their inclusion in the Lancet report, um, were involved in litigation in any way. So the litigation had absolutely nothing to do with the Lancet paper at all, and it would have been totally inappropriate to disclose it. And the Lancet rules for disclosure at the time left it entirely up to the author, that is me, to determine whether I should disclose or not. That was my responsibility. Now, the rules have changed. The rules are now much more onerous on disclosure and they require you to put yourself in the third person and say, what would another person possibly perceive as a conflict of interest? And therefore, to disclose everything. Now, those are commendable rules, but they did not pertain at the time the Lancet paper was published. However, I was judged on the contemporary rules, that is in 2010, and not upon the rules that pertained in 1997-98. It turns out, the Lancet editor, having denied that he knew anything about my involvement in the litigation, anything about Richard Barr or the Legal Aid Board or um, NMR litigation at all. Um, it turned out that he knew about all of those things because he had been informed up to a year uh, in advance of publication of the paper by Richard Barr himself, not only of my involvement but of the NMR litigation, of the legal firm Dorbarns, of the involvement of the Legal Aid Board. He knew or should have known about all of these because of the full documentary disclosure was made to him, and he seems to have forgotten. And all of this is now disclosed in the book as well, uh, again with the contemporaneous documentation um, showing that, in fact, the Lancet knew a year in advance of my involvement in the litigation. They were informed of it again very shortly after publication of the paper. They did not consider it uh, a problem or a conflict at that time, and it only seems that since this paper has become a pariah, has become something to be um, uh, rejected or, or distanced from, that they have, and Richard Horton in particular, has sought to do that, to put clear blue water between him and this paper, and sadly to have given false evidence to the GMC, which they do not seem to have taken into account. 
Thank you, Dr. Wickfield. And I'd like to ask Polly Tommy, Editor-in-Chief of the Autism File, for her comments on this at this time. Hi, Terry. Okay. Um, I can only really report on what the parents in the UK are saying um, with the last 24, 48 hours. It's, we've, got, we've got various groups of parents. We've got the parents that are out there that will speak out and are not frightened to speak out. We've got other parents that are frightened to speak out but still feel that the vaccination has caused damage to their child. But the ones out there are not going to give up. They're not going to go away. And the support, I was talking to a journalist this morning who was saying that, that Dr. Wakefield now has no support in England. That couldn't be further from the truth. He has more support than ever. And I can see that coming into my computer since yesterday. There is, nobody's going to give up on this. Our children are not going to go away and the support for him is, is going to grow. All right, and we will be right back at the Voice America channel with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Polly Tommy. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Polly Tommy. And Dr. Wakefield, I just want to clarify something that we were saying earlier on in the interview. Um, 
I mentioned them saying something about a sum of 50,000 pounds, and it was a, a costing proposal that they felt uh, uh, that you and Richard Barr had worked on from Dora Barnes that they felt should have been submitted or disclosed. As, what was the case with that? Yes, this was the grant proposal. So it was written out in the, in, in, in the format of a standard uh, medical research grant, and it was really an estimate of what the costs might be. And there were two elements to the cost. It's quite interesting this, that there were two elements. There was one uh, element for the viral detection work, and then there was a second element, which was for the investigation of the children clinically, if they merited it, but the doctors who referred these children refused to send them to the Royal Free. Now, that's just a function of the way in which um, the socialised healthcare system works in the UK. The doctors allocate money to refer their patients to a tertiary centre like the Royal Free. So if a child merited investigation or a, and a GP said, I'm not interested in investigating them, they've got autism, forget it, I don't care about the vaccine, don't care about the bowel problems, which was happening all the time, this was not unusual then um, it may be that there was funding available from the Legal Aid Board to conduct those clinical studies as well. In fact, that was never necessary. The children were referred uh, clinically, those who were legally aided, and they were not part of the legal of, of the uh, Lancet study. And um, so the, that, that element of the funding was never required, and this was known to the Legal Aid Board, it was known to the lawyers, it was known to me, and it was known to the medical school. So there was no secrecy. Everything was disclosed, and again, I am astonished that the GMC panel can come to the determination that they did because it was in error. Now, you've just mentioned two things in that response. Um, you have mentioned uh, one of the GMC's contentions that, saying Dr. Wakefield admitted that the funding subsequently provided by the Legal Aid Board had not been needed, and so they... They persecuted you on that count. And then there was the question about children, how they were referred. You just mentioned clinically. They're talking about consecutively. They're saying these children were not routine referrals. Can you explain all of these things to us? Yes. Let me, let me start with a second at first. Um, not routine referrals. And this is a major part of, again, why the Lancet withdrew the paper ultimately. What happened was um, parents called me initially, and they called me because they knew of my interest in um, viruses, vaccines, and inflammatory bowel disease. So the initial calls came through to me. I was not in a position to help these children because I was not a pediatric gastroenterologist. So I said, I cannot help you, but I do know someone who can, and that is Professor John Walker-Smith, the best pediatric gastroenterologist, to my knowledge, in the world. And so... I said, what you need to do is get your general practitioner to make a referral to Professor Walker-Smith. And again, this is the way in which the healthcare structure works in the UK. That was an entirely appropriate thing to have done. However, that was deemed by the um, GMC somehow perversely to be inappropriate. It seems to me that they would have been happier had I said, I'm terribly sorry, I can't help you, and I don't care about your child's problem, so would you go away and stop bothering me? That is what they appear to, would have, that they would have preferred me to have done. But I didn't, because I am a doctor, and um, my duty, both ethically, professionally, uh, and compassionately, was to make sure that these children got access to clinical care. So that's what I did. And I also said to them, if your doctor wants further information on the background to this, what we're thinking about how the bowel and the brain might interact, 
then I would be very happy to provide them with that information in a general context, just to show, to tell them what we are thinking. And on occasions, the doctor phoned me or the parent asked if I could call the doctor to explain that to them, which I did. Once again, this is collegial exchange uh, about um, a, an issue of common interest. There is nothing perverse, nothing sinister about this, and yet it was dressed up to be just that. And that is very, very sad because it has huge implications for the interaction of medical colleagues in the UK that are somehow deemed to be um, uh, evil or, or um, underhand in, in, in getting access to uh, adequate care for very, very sick children. All right, and, and then I think we're going to address the issue of having eventually said it, uh, the funds weren't needed, that the GMC accused you of those funds that um, eventually not even being needed. Yes, it, it was, it's again, an interesting turn of phrase. The, the GMC in their determination said Dr. Wakefield admitted the funds had not been needed. No, I didn't. Dr. Wakefield explained that the funds had not been needed. The, the connotation of admission is is just pejorative. Like I've been, you know, had an arm put behind my back and kicked nearly to death and then finally confessed that I didn't use the funds. It's absolute, utter nonsense. I simply explained to them the mechanism by which the funding was to be paid for these children, whether the um, uh, tests that they had clinically were going to be uh, necessarily funded by the health service or the um, legal aid board. And as I say, in the end, no funding was required from the Legal Aid Board for clinical tests, and all of the funding was spent in the spirit of the uh, of the um, protocol uh, for in investigation of whether the measles virus was present in the intestine or not. And um, it's as simple as that. Now, you used the words perverse and sinister, and speaking of which, it sounds like some people thought that the use of lumbar puncture um, might have been those things. And um, so I have... a. Uh, quote here that somebody named Carol posted to Age of Autism, and it's from Dr. Marcel Kinsborn, Professor of Pediatric Neurology, Tufts University, who I believe you uh, refer to in your book, too. Is that correct? correct? And this says, when a child who has hitherto developed normally begins to lose mental skills progressively in the second year of life, this represents a progressive encephalopathy that requires diagnosis. It continues, the most direct way of determining the mental condition of the brain, short of brain biopsy, which would be inadmissible in most such cases, is to study the composition of the cerebral spinal fluid, abnormal cytology and markers of infection, such as immune globulins, the infectious agent itself, or fragments of its genome, can nowadays be detected with high sensitivity. The spinal fluid is acquired through lumbar puncture, spinal tap. It goes on, to study a child who has regressed from normal development into an autistic syndrome by lumbar puncture is not in the least abusive. It is thoroughly warranted on clinical grounds. And I know that you cover this quite thoroughly in your book, and it's really um, an excellent uh, place to read about this, but can you elaborate a little bit for our listeners on the line here? Certainly. I was, it was originally alleged by Brian Deere, the journalist, completely incorrectly, that I had um, been involved in invasive procedures on children, including lumbar puncture. And the charge that was construed against me by the GMC was just that, that I had um, um, been involved in, in lumbar punctures on these children. And that this was experimental, and it was invasive, and it was totally unwarranted. Well, in fact, that is completely and utterly false. The, this, 
decision to undertake lumbar punctures in these children was made by the uh, medical team, that is the um, uh, the experts in neurology, in uh, child psychiatry, in um, pediatric gastroenterology, and in pediatrics. And the purpose of um, the lumbar puncture was very much in line with what you have heard from Marcel Kinsborn, one of the leading pediatric neurologists in the world. And this was to look for evidence of brain damage. In particular, and I think people might find this of interest, it was to look for evidence of a mitochondrial disorder. Now, this is 15 years ago, long before mitochondrial disorders became uh, preeminent in research in autism. And this is something that my clinical colleagues were looking for 15 years ago or more in the spinal fluid. And the reason for doing this was based upon a clinical protocol from Birmingham Children's Hospital, which was introduced to us by one of the uh, pediatricians. So it was entirely warranted clinically. It was not in any way experimental, and it was done to exclude a mitochondrial disorder in these children. Now, just to underline why this was a clinical test, after about seven or eight children had undergone this test, it was not yielding any evidence of a mitochondrial disorder or any other abnormality, and therefore it was discontinued in the best interests of the children. Had it been done for experimental reasons, we would have continued it nonetheless because we would have been asking research questions. So the lumbar puncture was explicitly and demonstrably done for clinical reasons, and that was determined by clinicians. I had no role whatsoever in performing the lumbar punctures and determining whether they were necessary or not or conducting any research on the spinal fluid taken from those samples, from those, from those procedures. And so when the GMC, it was brought to their attention that I had no role in the lumbar puncture at all, I was then, the charge was then altered to one of causing children to have a lumbar puncture. What an extraordinary situation. So they got the charge completely wrong to begin with. They had to refashion it, and then they found me guilty of the refashion charge again, which I had nothing whatsoever to do with. So people might begin to wonder where this case really came from. It, it, is, um, it is a testament to, um, to an extraordinary effort to, to silence um, the appropriate and necessary investigation of vaccine safety. And another charge that uh, seems similar to me because it's a procedure, uh, you know, there are, there are visiting nurses, I would imagine, who come to homes and, and uh, pr uh, perform procedures for children, like maybe blood draws or um, things with intravenous lines. They come to the home and do it. But you've come under a lot of fire for um, taking blood samples at, at a birthday party, they say. Yes, now this, this requires some explanation. Um, um, we needed uh, controlled blood samples for a, a study uh, from healthy children, non-autistic children, and um, we didn't have ready access to these at the hospital because healthy children don't come to hospital. So I asked my children if they would be prepared to help out, and they uh, very nobly said yes. And uh, so um, my wife said, we have a party coming up, we have some medical friends and others coming, and they may similarly be prepared to let their children give blood. 
And so that is what happened. I didn't take the blood. It was taken by a highly experienced, appropriately qualified uh, medical practitioner, but nonetheless, uh, the blood was taken at the party. Now, the important thing about ethical practice of medicine is the key to that is fully informed in uh, consent, parental and child consent in this instance, and that was freely given um, by the parents and the children for the taking of blood. It was uneventful, there were no problems, and everybody was happy. So it is a fact that this did not have ethical approval, and I accept that that, is, that was naive of me at the time. Nonetheless, it was, that does not mean that it was unethical. It was entirely ethical, and it was conducted in an entirely ethical way. Um, well, I guess one of, the, one of the things that has really brought this to the attention of the GMC was that rather stupidly, I told the story in an amusing or a sort of semi-amusing way at a meeting some years later, um, and it was really done to, one, exemplify the, uh, uh, the, the noble um, help of my children and their friends and also to reflect upon the commercial aspirations of children because the next year they wanted to be paid twice as much. That wasn't the case, but it was just the punchline of the story. Um, and that story has come back to haunt me. It wasn't true. It was just a, a funny anecdote um, that was intended to lighten up an otherwise rather mundane uh, lecture. And, um, and I was accused on that basis of callous disregard for the suffering of children. There was no suffering. The children didn't suffer. They're my children. I know that for a fact. And um, they were very happy uh, to do the whole thing again if ever asked, which, which they weren't. But there we are. That's the story. A mountain out of a molehill, but nonetheless um, one in which the, the, the British media and media elsewhere and, and the GMC uh, made a great deal. All right, and when we come back from break, we will talk about the transfer factor accusation here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield talking about his excellent book, Callous Disregard. Autism and Vaccines, The Truth Behind the Tragedy, and the website is www.callous-disregard.com. And when I came down here to do this interview, it was ranked 59 with Amazon. If you purchase the book via www.callous-disregard.com, money goes to research. And um, But if you need to purchase it through Amazon.com, then that will increase uh, the ranking for that, and we want to see this on the New York Times bestseller list. It is so important. When I read this book, it, it was just so self-evident to me, how could this case possibly have gone this far just looking at the information in this book? Um, and there's some information that I'm not going to tell you about today, but uh, I just think it would have been a, a no-brainer right from the beginning that it it never should have gone this far. And so, Dr. Wakefield, now I'd like to ask you about all of those transfer factor type accusations that they make in this GMC determination. They say you shouldn't have given it to a child. They say that your action, they imply that your actions were motivated by wanting to get a patent on something. They're talking about a business partner that you had. So, what do you say to all of this? Hi, right, Terry. Yes, transfer factor. Just, just as a very broad outline, transfer factor. Uh, many of the autism community may know about is um, is a naturally occurring, over-the-counter nutritional supplement. And the allegation that was made against me by Brian Deer, the journalist, was that I was um, trying to produce my own vaccine competitor to MMR. That I was going to bring about the downfall of MMR in cahoots with a lawyer in order to launch my own competitor onto the market and clean up. Um, it's a great story. It's a great story. It just happens to be uh, completely wrong. Um, vaccines work, as people probably know, by producing antibodies, little proteins that circulate in the blood and mop up viruses and other things as soon as they encounter them. And that is how vaccines protect children from infection, the production of antibodies. Now, um, transfer factor does not produce antibodies. It specifically does not produce antibodies, and therefore it could never act as a population-based vaccine, as was suggested. This is an example of how very, very little knowledge can be a very, very dangerous thing in the hands of the wrong people. Nonetheless, that was the allegation. There was a molecule called transfer factor, which we intended to use as a treatment, and what we had hoped is that it would stimulate the immune system of children who might be persistently infected with measles, that is, they cannot clear the virus from their system, 
and transfer factor might boost the immune system to help them do that, and that was what it was intended to do. The patent wasn't owned by me. It was paid for my, by me, but it was owned by the medical school. So it was the medical school that would have profited, not me. And my hope was that the medical school would build a new center for the investigation and treatment of patients with bowel disease uh, at the Royal Free if they made any profit from it. In the end, the trials did not take place, and the patent was abandoned, and it's as simple as that. But no, there was never a, a competitor to MMR vaccine or any other population-based vaccine. There was an intended uh, treatment, and that is what transfer factor is. You know, it's kind of like uh, saying that people who sell vitamin C are trying to compete with vaccines because... Uh, proper healthful nutrition and uh, nutritional supplements like vitamin C and uh, clean air and clean water naturally and exercise naturally immunize the body. Um, so you, wait, they are trying to restrict our access to vitamin C, come to think of it. So uh, along the same lines there. So having uh, built this straw man to knock down, the GMC that is, uh, having gone uh, I built that straw man and then knocked it down. Then we go down the slippery slope of what shall we do about this. So first the GMC says um, that they didn't think it was appropriate to address all of this by placing conditions on your registration. Then they went on to consider whether it would be sufficient to suspend your registration. Then um, they they talked about the patent some more and... Um, they talked about um, bringing the medical profession into disre- disrepute. And um, then they said uh, that they can uh, consider suspension where there's no evidence of harmful, deep-seated, or attitudinal problems. Well, you know, I have, I have known Dr. Wakefield for a while right now, and uh, I would say he exemplifies patience and integrity and uh, has just borne this with an extreme amount of grace and dignity. I don't see any harmful, deep-seated, or attitudinal problems, yet they go on. Um, suspension would not be sufficient or appropriate against the background of so- several aggravating factors, and suspension is not sufficient um, in that his actions are incompatible with continued registration as a medical practitioner. So, And I, I have a really hard time reading this part um, It says, accordingly, the panel has determined that Dr. Wakefield's name should be erased from the medical register. And so they did what they intended to do all along. Um, You can read this on Age of Autism, the article on Age of Autism. The the, uh, full account is there. Um, And I'd like to ask you, Dr. Wakefield, what your feelings are on what they determined and how they did it. Well, um, Terry, it's a, I, you know, from a personal perspective, it's very sad. I mean, I love medicine. I love the practice of medicine and the way that it should be practiced, the way in which I was raised to practice it and trained and the way which my parents and grandparents and uh, many, many relatives um, were trained to practice medicine. I think it's just a very sad, sad day for medicine in the U.K. where... Um, the diligent and compassionate care of very sick children is second-guessed by um, a panel that have um, a distorted view, for whatever reason, of what actually took place, and where the medical regulators can be influenced by mis 
reporting in the media and by government pressure uh, to put the interests of others before those of patients. There was never a single complaint from any patient or parent in this whole episode and never has there been against me uh, or against my colleagues, uh, Professor Walker-Smith and Merch. And um, uh, we are there to help patients and to protect them, and that is what the GMC should be there for. And instead, it seems that they have um, sided with, with public health and public health policy rather than the individual patient. It's, it's a very, very sad day. Um, I have no intention of going away. The parents are not going away. The children are not going away. Sadly, they're growing exponentially day by day so um, there is a job to do and although this is sad for me uh, and has been something of a trial for my family this is nothing compared to the trials that um, families with autism uh, have to go through on a daily basis so it's time to suck it up and get on with it and uh, carry on with the work um, and I am enormously grateful to the support that I've received um, throughout this whole um, debacle and uh, so thank you to, to your listeners and to the autism community generally. And I can promise the authorities that there are many, many parents and doctors and scientists out there who um, know the truth and who will speak out, and that time will come. So I'd, like to, I'd like to echo that. Um, I would just like to send a crystal clear message out there that Dr. Wakefield has stood by the children, and we will continue to stand by him. And uh, to, the, to the caller who had called in, I, I don't know whether you were yay or nay, pro or con, for or against, or where you stood. I want to apologize to you, but I knew how much we needed to cover, and that's why I wasn't taking callers today. So I want to thank you, Dr. Wakefield, for the great privilege of interviewing you today here on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And thank you very much, Terry, for, for inviting me back on this. And uh, I look forward to a very productive and interesting meeting here at Autism One. Again, to our listeners, please visit the website, www.callus-disregard.com. Next week, Betsy and Kristen are back talking about diet and dietary and nutritional issues. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzmedica, for questions about this program or copies of articles related to this topic. Please email me at taranga at autismone.org. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.